Welcome to this edition of The Gathering Storm, where we'll be investigating the subject of the world's final war with God. Uh, there will be several studies that will be involved with um, this presentation. My name is Dr. Paul Benware, and it is my privilege to share these minutes with you on a matter that I think is of great interest to really most of us. We want to take a look at the world that we live in and try and discern where we might be in relation to uh, end-time events as they are spelled out in the Bible. Uh, just how close are we to the final days of human history? Can we really uh, come to any conclusions on this matter, or is this just all a lot of wild-eyed speculation? I don't want to waste my time, and I don't want to waste your time, uh, in talking about something that uh, there's no legitimacy to be talking about. But I do think we'll see that the Lord Jesus does, in fact, um, indicate that this is a legitimate area of investigation. Hopefully, uh, this study will give us some specific and objective truths which will aid us and uh, in coming to some conclusions, give us, as it were, an unclouded lens to view our world and where it is uh, heading. I think it goes without saying that we are living in a, a very troubled world and in a very troubled country. We're amazed by the fast-moving erosion of morals, um, private morality as well as public morality, uh, the robust uh, growth of secularism and humanism, paganism, materialism, hedonism is simply breathtaking. Now it's true that all of these things have been around uh, since the dawn of human history, but what we are seeing, I believe, is the is um, something of a worldwide nature and the heightened manifestation and the accelerated growth of these things, that seems to be unparalleled. And so the result is that many of us wonder out loud if this is leading to the soon arrival of the biblical end times. Many Christians are convinced that we are in the end times and Interestingly, many non-Christians echo, in their own way, the possibility that, uh, that things are not going to end well, and uh, they may not be ending well uh, very uh, soon. And so they speak of Armageddon and Earth's annihilation uh, and the termination of most or all of the human race, and we see it in uh, television stories, uh, the themes of various movies. And added to the, all that is the factor that um, there are those in our world who are doing their best uh, to bring in the end times. Um, back in um, uh, 2014, uh, one of the uh, Islamic State spokesmen a guy by the name of Abu Muhammad al-Adnani um, said this, which is seen by many as part of the uh, stimulus for uh, outbreak of violence. This is what he said. Single out the disbelieving American, Frenchman, or any of their allies. Smash his head with a rock. Slaughter him with a knife. Run him over with your car. Throw him down from a high place, or choke him, or poison him. And this idea of the destruction of, um, of uh, folks living in the Western countries is uh, seen as something that's good and positive. And the reason is, is that uh, the, the appeal um, lies in the uh, portrayal of itself, Islam, uh, the radical Islam, 
as an agent of bringing about the apocalyptic Islamic end-time prophecies. They, in other words, the Islamic State uh, isn't just talking about the end times. It was actively working to make them happen. Um, a quote from uh, Stratfor, which is a think tank which uh, evaluates and analyzes uh, with a great deal of care what's going on in our world, and this is what they said. Quote, there are still many who have volunteered to support the caliphate experiment because of its transcendent purpose and because the idea of approaching the final days is so powerful that it can override any qualms about how the end is to be achieved. If you are fulfilling an apocalyptic prophecy, does it really matter that you murdered, raped, and robbed? And so there's a certain excitement about bringing about the end times in Islamic prophecy. And so, um, well, apocalyptic ideas have always been a part of, of um, people's thinking. In one sense, this also is unique in that uh, this is now a worldwide uh, phenomenon. And so <clears throat> the purpose of uh, this gathering storm uh, presentation on the world's final war with God is to take a look at what's happening in our world today and see how much of it might relate to the events of the end times as proclaimed by the Lord Jesus himself as well as the, the apostles and the Old Testament prophets. Is what we're seeing today uh, preparatory for the final days of man uh, prior to the arrival of Jesus Messiah and the establishing of his messianic kingdom. What we're going to do in this study is to look at seven factors which will tell us um, that we could be uh, close to the end time events as they are revealed in scriptures. Now, as we get started, um, we need to uh, hear from the Lord Jesus and the very balanced approach that Jesus himself made. The first thing we need to be aware of before we go any farther is that what we are doing is a legitimate area of investigation. When God has spoken about a matter, then it is a legitimate area for us to study, to research, and to give attention to. But the first thing I would point out about uh, something Jesus said um, that pertains to this is found in Matthew 16. And you remember that <clears throat> Jesus chides the religious leaders for not recognizing all the evidence that was there of his uh, coming, of the fact of what we would call his first coming. They should have been aware of what was going on around them simply because God had spoken. Remember in, in Luke chapter 24 on the Emmaus Road uh, when Jesus spoke to the two men there, he said, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then later on, uh, in the same uh, 24th chapter of Luke, uh, Jesus, in talking to the, his men in the upper room, said, these are my words, uh, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus makes it clear that throughout the entire Old Testament, there was um, so much uh, information given about Messiah's coming, in fact, 
his first coming, as we would call it. And so in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who approached him, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, There will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? And so it's very clear that they should have known. They should have been aware. Jesus is saying that there were observable events which had been foretold in the scriptures, Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, that they should have been aware of. And we recognize that when it comes to the Lord's return to this earth at what we call his second coming, there are many, many times more uh, prophecies and specific prophecies about the end times and what they will be like when Jesus returns. And so Jesus is making legitimate uh, investigation in this particular area. Now, we know, of course, that uh, Jesus also said in Matthew 24, 36, which is in the middle of his prophetic discourse that we call the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said, But of that day, referring to his return, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And so the balancing statement is that we cannot know exact times and exact dates, and so we must avoid this. We must avoid speculation. Uh, and this is the dangerous part of our study, is that uh, we need to observe what the scriptures say, and then we can make reasonable observations, and we can say with certainty, when we understand what the scriptures say, we can say with certainty, these events, these situations, these kinds of people make it possible for the final days of man to be commencing on the earth and maybe very soon. It's, uh, it's similar to uh, getting ready to put on a play. The stage is set. The props are put in place. But the exact moment when the curtain comes up is, um, is not clear. It could come up a little after the set time or whatever. The point is that as we look around at the prophecies of, of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, we do see that just about all of the furniture, just about all of the props are in place. The ones that might need some adjustment can actually take place uh, very quickly. And so we can say, look, the stage is set. What the Bible talks about is in place. We simply don't know when the curtain is going to go up. And um, this is important for us to keep in balance. We are to pursue this area of study, but we cannot know the exact um, uh, timing. And in fact, as a result, we can't know for sure um, about whether this individual or that individual uh, plays a part in the end times. You probably remember a few years ago that it was very fashionable, uh, particularly amongst many um, uh, prophetic scholars, uh, to speak of the place of Saddam Hussein in prophecy, or to speak of um, uh, the great armies of Iraq and how thus and so could take, uh, take place. Well, the point is that Saddam Hussein is dead, his army is decimated, and so many of those speculations have, uh, have been blown away in the wind of history. 
Think of all the people over the years who have been identified as the Antichrist. And of course, they weren't the Antichrist. And this probably more than anything else has discredited a study of prophecy. So we must keep a proper balance. Focus on what the scriptures uh, actually say on the matter. And then to see uh, what uh, may uh, be a, a possible um, uh, scenario that comes from them. So Jesus says it is legitimate uh, to be observing the signs of the times. It is illegitimate to be specifically setting dates and times and, and probably uh, specific individuals as well. Now, <clears throat> as we talk about these end times and we talk about the uh, events that will occur, there are um, three uh, key figures that are involved in end times events. Um, the unholy trinity, as some call them. And God has given to us an abundance of evidence about these three individuals who will have critical roles in the playing out of God's end time events. Now keep in mind that Satan does not know, according to Jesus in Matthew 24, 36, Satan does not know when the end times are going to come. So in answer to the question that is uh, often asked, the question being, is the Antichrist alive today? The answer is, yes, he is, but then again, um, maybe not. My point is that Satan will always have a man available, a man that he can, uh, he has so programmed and equipped so that if the time came when he will be marked out as the Antichrist, such a figure is, is always available. You know, people looked at Adolf Hitler uh, back in the 30s and early 40s as a possible candidate for the Antichrist. And for all I know, he, he was uh, a possible candidate. But it didn't turn out that way because uh, Satan simply does not know when the end times are going to come. But the three key figures in the end times are Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. When we study these individuals in the Bible as we, they relate to the end times, we can get a really good idea of what they will look like when they actually appear on the prophetic stage. And as a result, this gives us some idea of what we should be looking for when the end times come. So we want to um, be uh, focusing on uh, these three individuals to a certain extent, but the main one we'll focus on is the Antichrist, because uh, he is clearly the key figure. The spotlight is on him. Now, having said that, we do know from uh, the scriptures that behind him uh, stands uh, Satan. Uh, Satan uh, is the one who gives the Antichrist his great abilities, uh, his authority, and uh, his supernatural powers. Isaiah chapter 14 is familiar, and it is a debated passage, but uh, I am convinced that uh, behind the human um, leaders that are leader that's being spoken of here, that uh, Satan is in fact there. And I think that ultimately these things apply to Satan. I realize there's disagreement, but uh, at this point, uh, Isaiah 14, I think, is helpful. Isaiah 14, 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And the stars of God are a reference to angelic beings. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. The 
the result is that uh, Satan is called by Jesus and by the Apostle Paul the ruler of this world, the God of this world. Um, Paul uses that terminology in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, Jesus three or four times in the Gospel of John speaks of him that way, such as in John uh, chapter 12. And the reality is that, that Satan does have the kingdoms of the world under his authority. Uh, just remember the temptation of the Lord Jesus when Satan offered to Jesus the kingdoms of the world, if he would but fall down and worship Satan. Well, um, Jesus did not say to Satan when he off made that offer, he didn't say, eh, it's not yours to give. He was, in fact, acknowledging that um, they were Satan's to give. Now, Satan has had, uh, continues to have, and will have in the future an intense hatred for any and all who are loyal uh, to the true God. Uh, today, um, there is a growing anti-Semitism in spite of, of um, many things that should have been learned from the Holocaust in World War II. There is a growing hatred for the Jews, the covenant people of God. There, of course, is a growing hatred for Christians also, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, martyrdom is greater now in this modern era than it ever has been in all of the history of the church. And so there's this growing uh, hatred for God's people uh, that is seen in our world today. And behind all of this is one powerful, brilliant, ordering mind. This is, in fact, these end times, the battle, the battle, between Satan, the rebel, and the Creator God. And so, one of the things that the Bible is very clear about, which we will see in, in future study, is that there is going to be a uniqueness to end-time events that set it apart from anything that has ever happened in human history. And this is largely because Satan's uh, supernatural workings will be allowed and be manifested in a way that they've never been seen before. They were seen in the in the magicians in Egypt who challenged Moses and a few places like that, but nothing like what will take place in the end times. This is the battle uh, in uh, the world's final war against God in a and being led by the God of this world, the ruler of this age. The key man in all of this is going to be the Antichrist. Now, the term Antichrist is only used once in the New Testament, and that's in 1 John chapter 2 and verse, 20, uh, verse 18. Um, but he has, um, it's just, he has many, many other names. Uh, he's called the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, uh, the beast, the little horn, um, other titles. But the one that's sort of stuck is the one in 1 John 2.18, where John speaks of the fact that there are many antichrists that have entered the world, but he does allude to the one final antichrist. And that's the name that we'll be using of him, even though it's only used one time. In some ways, um, the name Antichrist uh, reflects uh, two basic uh, but very strategic things that we need to keep in mind about this man. In the Greek language, the term anti uh, can communicate a couple of things. One that we're familiar with is it can mean against. So if you're anti-abortion, that means you're against abortion. And so we use the term that way. Uh, and so this man is going to be against Christ. Uh, he will be uh, active 
not passive, in his uh, antagonism to the true God and to Messiah. But the word also, secondly, can carry with it the idea in place of substitution, so that um, he is a substitute Christ. He is anti-Christ um, in place of the true Christ. And so both are true of him. He is against Christ, but he apparently in doing so presents himself as, the, uh, as a false Christ, which, as we see, uh, that the Antichrist is, uh, is going to be religious. He is certainly not going to be an atheist. Now, the third individual uh, is called the false prophet, and he's never revealed in the first 65 books of the Bible, but only in Revelation is he talked about. In Revelation chapter 13, he is mentioned for the very first time. And there's a lot of things that are, that are described there about him, and a lot of things that uh, he is going to be capable of doing. We, have, we learn a lot about his job description. He is not called the false prophet, however, in Revelation 13. He's uh, called the false prophet in Revelation chapter 19. And there in verse 20, it says, And the beast was seized. This is talking about uh, when Christ comes back at his second coming. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those upon the earth, etc., etc. And the detailed description of the false prophet who was seized at the second coming aligns exactly with that which is given in Revelation chapter 13. And so it isn't until Revelation 19 that we have his um, um, uh, identifying name given, which would suggest to us, and we'll talk about this at a future time, his, his uh, religious nature. The only other place that he's mentioned is then in Revelation chapter 20 and verse uh, 10, where we are told that the beast and the false prophet will be cast alive into the lake of fire, and uh, there they will be forever and ever. Now, at this point in our study, I would like to look at the seven factors that, uh, from the scriptures that would suggest that we are, in fact, being prepared for end-time events. We are seeing the furniture, the props, uh, put into place on the stage. The world is being made ready. Now, these seven factors come from a number of specific scriptures, uh, which we're going to be taking a look at. And so, um, these uh, are not wild speculations that we're making, but grounded in the Word of God. And we do need to keep in mind uh, the fact that God's timing and ours are not identical. Um, I'm sure that over the years, many godly people speculated when Messiah would come the first time. Um, you know, there's, uh, at the end of the Old Testament, to the uh, arrival of the angel Gabriel to announce Messiah's birth are some 400 years, and you got to believe during that period of time, a lot of people were speculating and looking for, uh, when is he coming? But... Um, uh, the New Testament tells us, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, in Galatians chapter 4. Um, at just the right time, wasn't too early, wasn't a day late, uh, Jesus was born into the world. He entered the world as Messiah the very f uh, at his first coming. Um, so God's timing um, and ours is not identical. And um, I think all of us uh, who know the Lord and love the Lord and want to uh, see uh, the Lord honored in this world, 
uh, we utter the prayer of the martyrs uh, in Revelation when they say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, before it, you know, you, you bring this thing to an end. We don't know the, when the curtain's going up, do we? But we must constantly be alert and expecting the mass master. That's uh, an emphasis that Jesus himself made, that uh, the servant is to be working and laboring, always keeping one eye out for the master's arrival. And um, the consciousness of the master's return is is a stimulation to hard work and effort, uh, doing those things that will re will um, please the master. So <clears throat> we don't know when the curtain's going up, but we are to sit in expectation of it going up because it could go up at any moment. So says the Lord Jesus. Another thing to keep in mind as we look, uh, as we approach these seven factors, is that... Um, the removal of the Church of Jesus Christ at the event of the rapture will cause a seismic change in the world. The world will be radically altered religiously, morally, ethically, spiritually, and in so many other ways as well. Imagine for a moment, and we'll take take maybe 5% of the world's population. But imagine that 350 million people will be removed out of the world. And while some believers in the Lord Jesus have not been faithful and have not lived well, the reality is that the Church of Jesus Christ, in spite of all of its flaws, is salt and light in the world. And you think of um, in government, for example, where you do have here and there and, and over there uh, a good and godly leader who is working hard at stemming uh, the decay morally uh, that's happening in our own co uh, country, for example, that you remove these people and remove hundreds of millions of people can you imagine the rapid decline and decay that will immediately set in? And if there are, in fact, uh, certain props that aren't quite in the right place on the stage, very, very quickly and hurriedly, those can be put in place. And so I think it is safe to say, and I believe it, that the world stage is set. All the props, all the furniture, are basically in place. And um, it's simply, when is the curtain going up? There might be a few minor adjustments that need to take place. Uh, for example, the role that uh, the country of Turkey will have in the end times. Um, the, the rapture can stimulate a number of changes. I think there will be one major thing that occurs after the rapture. And before the tribulation is the Gog-Magog battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now that's really outside of the um, scope of our study here, though we'll make some allusions to it. But let's look at the seven factors. We're not going to get through them all in this study, but um, um, seven factors that are important uh, from the scriptures in determining the closeness uh, to end-time events. Number one, and it's first on the list because I think it is the most important of all, and that is the presence of national Israel in their own land. End-time events simply cannot take place without the Jews back in their own land. And this is by far the most telling sign of where we are in God's plan and God's program. We can um, question some issues. We can question and debate uh, some uh, events. <laughs> but what we cannot debate is that the Jew is back in the land, and they are there, 
and it's the most unique phenomenon in human history that after 17, 1800 years of basically being out of the land, that Israel is there. And they are still, um, as an ethnic group, they still speak Hebrew. They still abide by, at least uh, outwardly, many of them, the customs of the, um, of the uh, law of Moses. Now, do you, how many Philistines do you have living in your neighborhood? you have a Moabite or two at work? Probably not. Certainly nothing that you can identify. Because they have basically disappeared. They've been absorbed. But they're not a distinct national group anymore. Can you think of any group that 2,000 years ago was in existence, was then scattered for 1,700 years, and is back as an ethnic group again, identifiable with the people of ancient times. You can't, not really. This dispersing of Israel amongst the nations of the earth and yet bringing them back as it were intact is an amazing thing. When God spoke of Israel's return back to the land, he spoke of it in two stages. And it was very clear that he was going to do it. In fact, if you would uh, look in your Bibles at Exodus 34 and read through Exodus 39, you would find that in those uh, six chapters that 65 to 70 times God says, I will do this. I will bring my people back. To the land. I will um, bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I will be their shepherd. I will lead them back. 65 to 70 times. I think we would agree, uh, those of us who love the Word of God, uh, will believe that if God said it one time, that would do it. That would be sufficient. The, um, the uh, reality is, though, that God said it 65 to 70 times. Now, he said it would be a twofold restoration back to the land. First, he would bring them back physically to the land. From all over the world, he would bring them back. And it would be a process. In other words, it wouldn't happen in a weekend. It would be a process of time. And it would be a process that was noticeable. In other words, the nations of the world would observe what's going on. Now, do you think that the nations of the world observe what's going on um, today with the nation of Israel? Uh, I guess the question would be, is there anyone in the world who doesn't know Israel's back in the land? They are the focus of a great deal of attention in the United Nations. Now Israel's back in the land, and they continue to return. More than half the Jews of the world are present in the land. And that's the first time since the first century that that's ever happened. When they get back in sufficient numbers, and we have no idea what that is, um, clearly not all Jews will be returning back to the land before end-time events transpire. But when they come back to the land and God says, okay, it's um, time now to bring in the end times, um, you will have the second um, uh, stage of God's re bringing Israel back, and that is to bring him back, Israel back spiritually, uh, bringing Israel back to the Lord uh, and to a right relationship with God. The covenant people will actually uh, be living in covenant with them. Um, let me just read uh, what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36 and verse 24. A very uh, important couple of verses here because they lay out the clear sequence of events and the clear order that they're going to occur in. God says, for I will 
take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And in case anyone can't figure out what that means, uh, down in verse 28, he says, you will live in the land I gave to your forefathers. And of course, the Old Testament is filled with information about the land that was given to uh, the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. So God says, I'm going to bring you into your own land, which is their physical restoration. But then verse 25, this is Ezekiel 36, verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And God goes on to explain that he is going to give them a new heart, and that he's going to put his spirit within them. And so Israel is going to be brought back to the Lord. Now, do we know when that's going to occur? The answer is, yes, absolutely we do. We know that it is the primary reason for the period of time we call the tribulation. The great purpose of that seven-year period of time is the salvation of the nation of Israel, of bringing Israel back into the new covenant again. And that will take place during that seven-year period of time. And not only will Israel be saved, but multitudes of Gentiles by the millions will be saved because Israel will finally be functioning as a light to the Gentiles as she was always intended to mean be. Now, the, um, the trigger mechanism uh, for the final seven years is given to us in Daniel chapter 9, where in Daniel 9, um, we are told in verse 27, that he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And as you look at the context, uh, the he is a reference to um, uh, an individual of, in verse 26 that we commonly refer to as the Antichrist. And so the Antichrist will make a treaty, a covenant, uh, guaranteeing Israel's safety and protection, and it will be for a seven-year period of time. And um, uh, he is going to make it with uh, the leadership of Israel. Um, Israel is in unbelief at that moment. Uh, they are still uh, an unsaved people. But um, that is what will trigger the, seventh, uh, the seven-year period of time. And so um, where are we? as far as Israel's return is concerned. We just don't really know uh, the day or the hour. What we do know is that since the late 1800s, Jews have been going back into the land uh, when uh, Herzl and his Zionist movement began, and uh, Israel is, is entering back into the land and has by the, the tens of thousands uh, since that period of time. And so they are being restored physically back to their land again. Now, whether they are in sufficient numbers, uh, we don't know. If they, if they have reached that number that only God knows, um, or percentage that God knows, uh, then the tribulation period will in fact begin, because now God is ready to, um, uh, the, for the second stage in the restoration of Israel, and that is the spiritual restoration of the nation. So, the most important factor is the presence of national Israel back in their land again. And um, uh, we don't know exactly uh, how close we are, but this uh, is one of those things that causes us to look towards heaven and to say, uh, it could be any time now that the curtain is going up. The, um, so the first is the presence of Israel, the restoring of Israel. That is the first and I think the most significant uh, event or factor uh, indicating we are in the end times. There is a second um, factor that I want to talk about in this uh, broadcast, in this study. Um, 
It's a general departure from God's truth. Now we know that since the days of the Garden of Eden, when uh, Satan interjected that which was false, that the struggle has always been for the minds of men. And we do know that uh, whether it was in national Israel or even in the early days of the church, that there has always been um, the presence of false teaching, false prophets, uh, false teachers um, in Israel and in the church. And we also realize that uh, Satan's is the source of false teaching. As uh, Paul explains, these are doctrines of demons. So it's not just people that are responsible. But this um, departure from the revelation of God, men going their own way, while that has always been a problem, the Apostle Paul speaks of the apostasy that will come about immediately uh, before the unveiling of the Antichrist to the world. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3, where Paul is uh, comforting the believers at Thessalonica who had been told by uh, a false teacher or teachers that they were in fact in the tribulation period, Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come about, that is the day of the Lord, the tribulation, will not come about until, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The apostasy, the uh, great departure from truth, the great distorting of truth, the great bringing in of error of all kinds uh, is going to occur. What he is talking about is not what has gone on for many uh, centuries, but he is speaking of something that is unique, something that is widespread, uh, practically almost a universal departure from God's revelation. Much of the world departed from the truth of God as found in, in Scripture, in nature, and conscience long ago. The Western world is now, and has been, uh, observing an amazing acceleration of the departure from God's standards, God's truth. Um, and it's seen not only in the culture, but also seen in the church as well. Um, Paul goes on to say, this is still in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, down in verse 8, <clears throat> he says, And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and so on. One of the important points that Paul is making is that the, the lawless one, uh, the son of destruction, as he refers to the Antichrist, is going to be unveiled like a, you have a statue that's covered with a, a tarp and at the right moment they pull the tarp off the statue and the statue which has been in existence uh, but is now unveiled. And that will be true of the Antichrist. Uh, he is in existence, but now he's going to be unveiled for who he is, the Antichrist, and that event is going to be the signing of that covenant between the, him and Israel that Daniel 9.27 refers to that we just talked about. But before that, before that takes place, there is going to be uh, this tremendous uh, departure from the truth of God and the removal of the Spirit's uh, ministry of the restraint of sin both of which uh, look at the removal of the church of Jesus Christ, uh, the one who holds the treasure of the gospel. The church is removed, and apostasy will explode in the world. Now, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul has given the outline of how this thing works and what it looks like. Uh, we find this in... Um, um, in Romans chapter 1, 
And hopefully Romans chapter 1 is a very familiar um, chapter to you. But let me give you a brief overview and summary, and you can see that what is happening uh, in our culture in America, but what is also happening in the Western world, and in a sense what has happened in much of the world long ago, um, gives us a pattern uh, for uh, what happens to people when they turn from the truth of God. There is telltale evidence of it. God gave revelation to mankind. So says Paul in Romans 1, um, 18 and 19 and 20. And there he mentions that truth was written on man's conscience. That, in other words, um, man has uh, instinctively, because it's written into his DNA, spiritually, so to speak, is right from wrong. Guilt, when they do what is wrong. Now, we understand that a conscience can become dull and eventually calloused and seared. But the point is that man, that the truth of God is written on man's conscience. It's also written into creation. And so all of man has uh, the, the truth of God and what it reveals about the, the sovereignty of God, uh, the omnipotence of God, um, the brilliance of God. Uh, his omniscience and his power and his glory is written into creation. So man has that in his re the revelation of God in his conscience, and he also has it in the creation. The greatest revelation, of course, comes through the scriptures themselves. And uh, when God has revealed himself, and we don't know all of the ways in the world that God has revealed himself. Uh, we know of a guy by the name of Melchizedek, uh, back in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, a pr king priest of the Most High God. And we know that uh, God sent Jonah uh, to uh, Nineveh with his message. And there is just uh, evidence from the stories of the Bible which focus on the nation of Israel that God always has loved Gentiles, and he probably has spoken to them in various times and in various ways. The scriptures, though, were given through the Jewish people. And um, Paul says that a positive response, Romans 1, 16, um, a positive response to the revelation of God will bring a man back into a right relationship with his creator, and his creator will then become his savior, and the gospel delivers a person. Uh, when a person places their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they, um, they are granted at that moment of faith eternal life. All sins are forgiven. Uh, their, their future is guaranteed that when a person is declared righteous by God at the moment of faith, as far as God's concerned, uh, they are glorified as well. That will be happening in our personal futures, but as far as God is concerned, it's a done deal. That's why Jesus uh, looked at salvation as, um, uh, as something simple that a child could grasp and understand. And so uh, Paul says that the response to Revelation, that's a positive response, will bring God's great salvation. The gospel will come. That person who is alienated from God will be restored back to God again. But the majority of the chapter at this point is devoted to a negative response, which brings not God's grace and salvation, but brings, in fact, the wrath of God. And it's viewed as present tense. The wrath of God hovers over a man who rejects revelation. In other words, he's in imminent danger, and so what Paul does in these, um, in these verses, which are helpful for us in viewing our world, is, is that two things always happen when God's revelation is rejected. The first is that men will go into idolatry. For even though they knew God, 
they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, empty, void in their speculations, in their logic, in their reasonings, in their theology. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And we sure do see a lot of that and always have. They've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. So one of the things that will always take place is that men will descend into idolatry that there will be an ignorance of God, there will be claims to um, be wise. In other words, we can solve the issues of life, we can put in place uh, the ingredients necessary to bring about a good life or salvation. And then you get into um, uh, idolatry of all kinds. And, and um, the more people stray from God's revelation, the greater the idolatry will be. And while idolatry is manifested through um, all kinds of things in the world today and worshiping idols and, and totem poles and um, burning incense to the spirits that live in the trees and all of that kind of thing. Um, the reality that anybody or anything that is ahead of Jesus Christ and the true God is, is in fact idolatry. And so uh, when we have a program like American Idol, uh, that's an interesting title, but there's a certain amount of reality behind it because uh, our singers and our athletes and our, our musicians and movie stars and uh, these are the these are the gods that we worship. Uh, they uh, they are in the form of corruptible man, Paul says, uh, and idolatry is all over the world. Uh, and it's an amazing thing. You can worship uh, philosophies and systems and nationalism. But when people leave the truth of God, um, idolatry becomes rampant, and we certainly are seeing that in the world today. The second thing that Paul says that it leads to is um, moral decline. And a moral decline where um, you have the acceptance of immorality. And uh, in our own culture, that which was uh, even in movies fundamentally forbidden 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, is manifested uh, on the television set, on the big screen. Uh, immorality is glorified. It's a way of life. Uh, it's absolutely perfectly acceptable. Uh, immorality of all kinds. Um, then that proceeds along into the acceptance of homosexuality, uh, which Paul describes in uh, verses 26 and 27. And then it descends into, uh, after that, when people leave the truth of God, uh, it descends into a completed type of depravity. Uh, and in verses uh, 28 um, through 32, which ends Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul speaks of those who um, they don't uh, see fit to acknowledge God and by the way, God is systematically being removed, as you know, uh, from our culture, except when a tragedy comes and then we need to pray to him. But uh, God is a gentleman. I think we need to keep this in mind when people say, well, where was God when this tragedy occurred uh, or where this uh, group of people did this terrible act or where this uh, disaster of nature wiped out all the... Where was your God? Well, the answer, I think, is is fairly simple, and that is that God is a gentleman, and God never forces himself on any of his creation, at least at this point in time. And we have basically said we don't want God in the um, public arena of our nation. If you want to do things privately, so be it. Whatever you know flips your switch is fine, but not in public. Uh, God is not to be a part of our public life. And so we've said, please leave. And in essence, he is in the process of doing that. And so we ought not to blame him, should we, as a nation, when things happen? Well, Paul says this, and I think this is very important. In verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. 
And then he lists 21 evils that are mentioned here. And we're not going to uh, look at these. But you look at this and you recognize that, that men become aggressive in their sinning. They become open in their sinning. They glory in their sinning. And why do they do that? Because they have an abandoned mind. They have a conscience no longer. And there we are seeing in greater numbers, as some uh, sociologists call, robopaths. Uh, people who are socially dead. They, they have no real conscience. They are deadened to right and wrong. They are calloused towards others. And we are seeing this worldwide in the slaughtering of people. And while we look at um, some of these radical Muslim groups and what they are doing, it, it is simply an acceleration of the abandonment of God's revelation. But we are seeing it in Western culture in a way we've never seen it before either, where there is an absolute uh, with removal of conscience, a deadening to that which is right and wrong. And so this is not a declaration that they have become atheists, but rather they have in fact become ungodly. And I would point out to you something Jesus said in Luke 17. If you look at Luke 17, 26 through 30, you'll find that Jesus there says um, that when he comes back, what will characterize the world uh, when he comes back is that men are going to be um, uh, eating and drinking and, and uh, marrying and giving in marriage and doing business and all of that kind of thing. And he specifically then says, as it happened in the days of Noah and has happened in the days of Lot, and then he goes on to describe something we, aren't ex we wouldn't expect, and that is we would expect him to describe the raw evil and the, the uh, manifestation of, of immorality and uh, uh, very violent kinds of sins. But Jesus doesn't say that, though it will be true. What he says is that they're going to be buying and selling and building and planting and marrying, giving in marriage, eating, drinking, and you think, well, what's so bad about that? The point that Jesus is making is that they are ungodly. That is, they do all of the uh, events and activities of life by as if God doesn't exist. They have marginalized God right out of, of the ordinary uh, affairs and events of life. That's what will characterize um, these end days. Yes, they are going to be terribly evil and violent. That's where it's headed. But also, there is going to be a ramped-up ungodliness that will occur in the world. And we are seeing that, and that's exactly what's going to be the characteristic of the end times. And so the second factor that points to where we're at is the general departure from God's revelation and a departure which brings in idolatry and it brings in a moral decline that is observable in so many ways. And so we look at these events and these things. The return of Israel back to the land and the general departure from the truth of God and all of the violence and evil that that brings with it along with idolatry. And we are being prepared, I believe, for what we will see in the end time events that are talked about in uh, Revelation and Daniel and other places as well. Now, next time, we want to look at the next five factors that we talked about, and we're going to begin with um, the weakening of the European Union. Perhaps um, something that um, we haven't generally thought about is taking place in the world which prepares, I believe, for what we observe in Daniel chapter 7. So we um, have to conclude because our time is up, but um, 
we are looking at um, the final war of the world against God, the final war which is empowered, directed, choreographed uh, by Satan himself through the prime characters of the Antichrist and the false prophet. I trust that as we do this study, that it will make us more sensitive to what is being put on the stage and has been put on the stage by way of furniture and props. We need to remember the curtain could come up at any moment. Thank you.